Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Molly, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Super excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio of some of the big ideas you're interested in? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so my name is Molly Milky, and um, I have a pretty weird and twisted and circuitous back- background, but I think the key themes that probably run through all of it are an interest in storytelling and humans and how they work and kind of influencing both hearts and minds, um, as well as how we can make people more agentic and do more with their lives and kind of reach higher and aspire. Um, and then I think also just um, encouraging more beauty in the world, I think is like another theme. So they all kind of like tie in together and they've manifested in different things at different points in my life. I started my career in entertainment and then I got into design and then I got into tech um, and then I got into venture. So kind of a weird twisted backstory, but I think that I've always been pulling at those threads through it all. Love it. Love it. Well, I want to jump into um, the first topic I'm really interested in that I've seen you write about um, agency, encouraging agency in people. I believe you wrote something recently along the lines of that, you, you know, we all believe that's impossible to kind of bump agency in adults or something like that. Like it's very yeah. much fixed. Like people's, um, they get in these grooves and perhaps it's just impossible to convince them they can do more things, have an impact on the world. Um, you know, has that not been your experience? And are there any common factors that kind of tie the people together that you've been able to encourage agency in? Or is it more just like we're really bad, we have just poor techniques or mechanisms to encourage people's agency? I think that what we lack is cultures of agency. I am a pretty strong believer that um, people are mimetic. And if you put them in environments where people are ambitious, they will become more ambitious. Um, But I don't think we have a lot of environments that really encourage the kind of high agency, high ambition, just reaching for the stars and fulfilling your full potential, whatever that might be. We, We don't have a lot of environments like that. Most of them are more kind of tailored to making people think in a certain way for maximal profit in a certain dimension. I think um, technology is a bit of a unique one where it does do some of that, but it also, there's more kind of uh, free reign in different directions of like ways that you can impact the world using technology as a lever and, and funding mechanisms like venture capital that are pretty tailor designed to like very huge bets. And that inspires a certain like very, very large scale of imagination that encourages a lot of agency and ambition. Like that's what VCs are hunting for. That's what this entire industry kind of runs on and what fuels and pays for all of our jobs. Um, So I think that it's really just like creating those environments for people that is like the missing piece. But I think beyond that, um, I think that we don't have really great understanding of like how to make kids agentic when they are um, growing up. I think that there's been a lot of just like (laughs) kind of different parenting trends throughout the years that haven't really resulted in anything particularly compelling, especially in the environment I grew up in America. Like I think that kids are, have been kind of playgrounds for different experiments in like what actually makes someone into um, an exceptional outlier. Uh, But I think that there is definitely like 
something to be said for later in life. Those cultures of agency and ambition can like bring it out, even if the childhood didn't really do much for it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a moving target. And I think it's also, it's really hard to study because there's so many factors that are um, hard to measure, whether they're intrinsic or extrinsic, like as a person kind of built with a certain amount of agency. I, I don't think so. I think it's very much brought out of them. Um, as seen by, there's a lot of just kind of like latent potential that could be tapped into from other industries that are more like hierarchical. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think there's something going on with the fact that, you know, pretty much all of our education in the United States shuttles people towards this kind of um, very hierarchical system, system, like you mentioned, academia? You know, all yeah. it almost seems like all of our primary school training is actually just training to become an academic. And then our college education mm -hmm. is training to be an academic as well. Uh, but very few people actually end up going down that route. Do you think that has an effect on, you know, you know how people's agencies and what they can believe, agency and what they believe they can do? Yeah, it trains them to uh, operate within a bureaucracy, basically, um, which is like a very unique skill set that uh, is actually perhaps applicable to a lot of fields, but it's not applicable to making a person particularly agentic. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. It's basically just like learning how to play the politics game, usually to get something that you want done within a very small pool. Um, so it's like a constrained scale of imagination by design. And, and I think that that's pretty sad. <laughs> like, I don't think that's the best training model to put someone in. I think that it's better to be thinking on the scale of like the entire world. What impact can you have there as opposed to your university or your like government agency that you're in or whatever it is. Um, but I think that that can be hard to convince people of just because it means that if you fail, you're failing at a very large scale and there's less people kind of like taking care of you. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think the, like on the macro level, have people in the developed world, the West in particular, um, gotten less agentic over time? Do you have a sense of that, of how things have have changed, or do you think it's been pretty steady over the past kind of 50 years or so? I think it's really, really hard to tell, actually. <laughs> um, I, I actually, because I dug into like research on this, and basically it's never been measured in a way that people really agree on. Um, I think that there, the, maybe the better measure is actually looking at just like, uh, opportunities available to them versus opportunities realized. That seems a little bit easier to measure. And it does seem like we are at a moment in time when people have maximal resources for free usually to make something of their own, to make their own path, to work for themselves, whatever it may be. That is most likely a definition of agency because they're really like harnessing the reins of their opportunities. And, but how much of that is actually realized? And I think it's actually a very small set. And that is like the tragedy of lost agency of our time um, versus in the past. Like, I think that, uh, it, you know, people might have been more agentic, but it might have been more like motivated by fear or something like that. Like, it's just really, really hard to tell because there was less like baseline security. Uh, right. But I think in the developed world, world, we should be seeing like a skyrocket in working for yourself and agency and ambition and all of these like big shots on goal. And yet we're not. And that seems to me to be the core problem. It's definitely, it definitely seems like a, it's a really huge problem. And it's, it's a really weird problem when you think about it, because at some level, you know, if it, what's the worst case scenario, you know, you lose your job, you have no money, you're probably, yeah. you're not going to starve, especially in America, you're not going to starve. Like, you know, you're going to be okay. The, the yeah. very least you will. Um, but at the same time, we have this problem where it seems like people just, 
I know why questions are really difficult, but like, do you have any, any suspicion about what's going on here? Is it just like truly just some cultural thing that academia has beaten into us or just the culture at large has just gotten worse over time or something? I think, um, there really is a pervasive mentality around being like a fear of failure. I, I think that that to me, and I think that that is trained by academia and a certain like complacency around this is how it works. You must learn the rules and like follow them. Um, and I think that that's further enforced by most jobs. <laughs> and, and that's a really hard mentality to break out of. And usually you need to be put in an environment that proves to you that it's safe to do otherwise. And very few people are. Um, and so I think it's really just like, we don't have as much of a culture of um, uh, just shots on goal being something that is celebrated in itself, even if you fail. I think within tech, we do to a certain extent and in some other industries, but that is like a rarity. <laughs> and it's already filtering so far down for people that are willing to make big leaps of faith um, that you're not, there's like definitely uh, something lost by all the people that are not <laughs> already attracted to technology or a culture that would give them those, like that free space to take shots on goal. Um, and I think it is also just like, there's not a lot of models of of what this can look like. Like, I think that the standard narrative of like the American dream or what is left of it is is not one of, you know, uh, self pioneership at this point. It's more like getting a stable job, like making your kind of Midwest existence or whatever it is, like kind of just a, a solid family. And that's all great. But I think it's not like encouraging the aspirational type thing that in the past, I think America did actually have a more kind of like elevated thing of uh, aspiring to owning a business and a factory and all these different things that, that felt a little bit more um, agentic, really. Like that's something that there is a huge, much more greater um, opportunity for failure, but also much greater opportunity for success if more people are aspiring to that and holding that as the standard. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Molly, how was it for you? Because you've struck out on your own. You're doing this very ambitious project, uh, you know, very ambitious career field, starting your own fund, you know, the grants project, et cetera. Um, I have my own anecdote about, you know, starting a company and and how in doing something ambitious, it's it, it's quite, it, it was quite horrifying. I can be completely honest. It was like pretty scary when you're watching all your friends on, you know, very track paths, which you have guaranteed, you know, essentially guaranteed success, right? And you're like, well, I'm going to go throw the ball deep and see if I can catch it. But that's like, it is quite scary how was it for you personally you know, going out and doing something quite ambitious like this i think that i was quite lucky that i um was put in these environments where all my friends were doing weird stuff nice. at a young age <laughs> and i really do think that like my my work in grants and all these things was basically just aimed at spreading that like i was just That's hoping cool. to um create more of the uh good luck that i had been bestowed with I think it was it was scary at different points for different reasons. I think that most of it was never all that um, uncharted because I saw other people around me doing the same and had good mentors and all of that. But I do think that the the part that was the scariest that really uh, beat me down before building me up was uh, fundraising for a fund. It was definitely like a long process of actually for the first time in my life getting like very high volume rejection yes. <laughs> and, oh, yes. and realizing <laughs> and realizing that it's actually just totally a numbers game. And yes. I think now like my my takeaway from all of that is that I wish I could prescribe almost all people high volume rejection because it's such a like core competency to know that most things are just numbers games and not personal yes. and building a tough skin from like getting rejected a lot and realizing 
your worst possible fear is not that bad, actually. Whatever. <laughs> it's just like, ah, oh, it's okay. It's actually fine. Some people will buy into it. Others won't. But it's probably not even really about me. It's more about them. Um, that was key for me. Like, that was a big turning point. Because up until then, like, I was technically treading my own path and all that kind of stuff. But I had so many hangups of like fear of failure and looking stupid and all this kind of stuff. But once I started really running at something and then had proven to myself that like I can do it and was sitting on something that I could objectively point at and be like, I did that. That's a core competency. And it has real reason to inspire confidence as opposed to just like trying to manufacture confidence in a void, which I don't think is a long lasting (laughs) actual (laughs) way of, of running yourself. That's smart. That's really smart. No, I, I like that a lot. I think that's 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 under talked about. It's just like some level, you need to get okay. Yeah, you need to get okay with um, things not always going correctly. To understanding that you know, if you shots on goal, like you described earlier, if you yeah. keep trying, like that, and you're 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 smart, and you keep trying, and, and you have a good plan, eventually things will work out. But you you do have to be prepared that it's not all going to work out totally. at any given time. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. That's great. That's great. I want to talk a little bit about the interventions you have seen that have been successful in encouraging people's agency. Uh, it might be grants, et cetera, but, but what have you found that has been particularly useful in encouraging people to do more ambitious things, to go out there and really try something interesting? I think um, I see there being usually two inflection points in a person's like career um, and I'm, I'm focusing more on like career development as opposed yeah. to like general personal development. I think usually the first person to bet on you is one. That's like a very key inflection point. And that can be with money, mentorship, um, giving you work experience, tacit knowledge transfer, all these different types of things. I think that it is useful if the person really like, I don't think uh, saying I'm betting on you means anything unless they're actually betting on you with their time or their money. Right. Um, I, I, I learned that early on in my career. It's like, you can have a lot of people that are just like passively, like I'm such a big supporter of you, but it means nothing if you actually are like asking them for money or help and they don't show up. Right. Um, and that's actually a really good filtering mechanism. So that's one inflection point. The next is um, like probably late stage in career, not late stage, maybe mid stage. And they're thinking of maybe they've been following a tracked path and then they're wondering if they should start something of their own. And that can be another intervention point where their agency can be massively increased, usually by someone coming in and betting them at the same time. But I think like a lot of times uh, the the murky middle in between those, maybe it doesn't mean as much because you're, you're too like set in your ways on a certain path, whatever it may be. Um, so I, I tend to focus on those. I've obviously focused more on the first inflection point. Um, this is why I have a grant program attached to my fund where I give small checks to people as really just explicitly saying, I am making a bet on you as a person. I think you're wonderful and going to do something amazing. And you're obviously not founding a company yet, and maybe you never will. But I would love to be someone that really puts their money where their mouth is and is a supporter of you. Um, And I had that happen to me and it was hugely influential. So I'm really trying to pass it on. Um, And I think that that strategy of money and support and just knowing that you have someone in the wings can be a huge agency expander. I think another one or something that can be combined with a bet is putting them in an environment with other ambitious people like them where they can really just, their mirror neurons get trained on like what it looks like to be a person taking shots on goal and being ambitious and agentic. Um, And it really just, for me at least, it really expanded my scale of imagination and how I was imagining like what my life could look like, how I could be as a person. And it made me much more interested in figuring out 
through actual experience, like what I was uniquely good at and could only do as the person that I am now and, and doubling down on that, as opposed to following something that someone else is doing because they look successful and all that kind of stuff. I, I just, I think when you're in environments with a lot of people that are doing their own thing, it's very hard not to like kind of reflect back on yourself and be like, I should be doing that too. And right. and that is really unique. And I think that's actually quite hard to find. Um, I think sometimes like very early stage startups can have a lot of this because there's a bunch of really highly talented people conjoining to make something real and they have to be very good at what they do. Um, and so sometimes you can kind of be pushed in the direction of becoming the, the best version of, of yourself there. Um, there's other ones, like depending on the, the actual core competency of a person, you know, becoming an intellectual, there's different spaces where you can learn a lot from tacit knowledge of like a mentor or someone of that sort. Um, but I think it really is, yeah, either someone betting on you with money or time or being put in an environment that, that really like allows you to um, envision new possibilities for yourself. Those I see as like the main core ways to expand someone's agency. That's great. That's great. Can you talk a little bit more about those, uh, you know, those environments? Are there any places in particular you would recommend, you know, you're talking to a young person, you like, you need, is, you know, I, of course I, you know, I'm a Georgist, I'm super interested in, in location and place and things like this yeah. and urbanism. Um, you know, the re- remote work seems to have, have done some interesting things in spreading out talent a little bit. It, you know, is it still worth going to the Bay Area? Is it still worth going to San Francisco if you're a young person and really ambitious? And I don't want to give like blanket advice, but like on the margin, <laughs> if someone is, is interested in, in and thinking about these things, is that still like a worthwhile thing, at least to visit? I think it is most definitely. I think it's more just, um, there is such a high density of serendipity in areas that are, uh, very spiky in a particular dimension and a particular type of person. And San Francisco is like the most spiky in the area of technology and innovation and, um, a certain type of very driven, usually entrepreneurial, maybe to a certain extent, and just technology-minded, future-minded type of person. There's a there's a sorting of values that happens there too, where I think you are around so many that um, will just allow you to make the best possible version of whatever vision you have in your head, because there's a lot of alignment. You don't have to like search that hard to find right. people that are, that are your kindred souls. Um, I think it's interesting though, because like other, other cities like New York city are very good in serendipity in different ways, because they also have high concentrations of all the most amazing people in a bunch of different sectors. Um, and that's, that can be really useful if you're building something that isn't just you know, trying to be at the forefront of technology or trying to fuse it with like culture or other influences. But I think if you are making something that is like a pure technology product, it's still like quite beneficial to be in in the environment that is like most conducive to its growth and finding your people. Um, So that's usually my advice is just like, and you don't even have to be there forever, but I think that there is, especially as young people, like formative times in your life where you can find um, your tribe that then you grow up with. And that is a really, really worthwhile investment, um, especially if you are a budding entrepreneur. Yes, I think I think that's very important. It's very important. And, and it, there, you know, do you get the sense that there are also founding effects that matter when, when you get groups to get people together if you know if you can group together highly ambitious people i just think back to college you know i still talk to on a daily basis you know i think two or three of my friends who i met like the first day of college which seems to be like this <laughs> yeah. really like statistical outlier you know like uh, you know it seems to be but do you think there's something special about founding effects for groups of people in the beginning um that yes. getting a good group together can be really really impactful absolutely yeah and i, I think it's um just having really good friends 
<laughs> is like a, a very underrated uh, thing for the success of any person, whether they're ambitious or not. Just happiness, satisfaction, like all the statistics show that like your, uh, your, yeah, basically your satisfaction in life is dictated by the quality of your relationships. And so it's not even, it's just like thinking of you as a holistic person. It's really useful to have friends and also friends that you have a lot of shared context with and like friend groups, but especially in the context of ambition, those are the people who are making huge risks and um, again, shots on goal. And they're the ones who need a support system the most because they most likely don't have one that is like baked into their organization or whatever it is. Right. And so if you can get that from your friends and they are also ambitious and also taking similar um, shots on goal and you guys can like learn from each other's failures, I think that that is really, really key um, and just kind of irreplaceable as well. Definitely. No, I, I love that. I think that's that's great advice there, especially it seems, it seems like relationships are very important for your happiness. So you should spend a lot of time curating them and, and being very yeah. careful about who you spend your time yeah. with. Yep. And I think that the internet is really good for finding your people too. Like I think a lot of them gravitate more towards the Bay Area if you are of a certain mind and, and kind of intellectual plus entrepreneurship bent. Um, but I do think that like representing yourself and your interests online is a really good way of increasing the serendipity of finding people that you wouldn't otherwise in whatever locale you've like kind of constrained yourself to. Um, and it's easier said than done, but I do think that, that I've had a lot of benefit from that. That's great. No, I think that's great advice. And, you know, so many good things have happened from this podcast just through meeting people and putting the bat signal up. I think that's the most important thing. I'm sure you've had something similar with Twitter or other mediums where if you get if you just put the bat signal up, hey, I'm interested in these type of topics, you can find the the one or two people in the world that are also interested in your very narrow vertical. Yeah. For me, that's property taxes. But, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe something else for you. Yep, totally. No, I've definitely I think I um, narrowed in on my like core obsession slash thing that I'm the most compulsive about is like understanding human beings. And I think that that is what has uh, birthed <laughs> my approach to my fund, as well as my writing and everything I do. And I think I've found a lot of people in the world that I never would have stumbled across otherwise through the internet. Am I writing on those things that are also very compulsive about understanding human beings? And I've learned so much from them, um, like so, so much. And it's cool. Sometimes I feel like it's a very easy way to um, kind of cobbled together a DIY PhD or whatever, just by right. finding your people that are also really, really interested in this weird niche thing. <laughs> I love that. No, I, that's, that's, that's great. That's a great way to put it. Molly, you know, so I, I'd love to ask you a question about that. What do you think generally today, most people just misunderstand about uh, human beings and, and like what we can do mm -hmm. or, or just something like that. Is, is there some one thing you've kind of found to be like very pervasive that just people just completely misunderstand? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think that we're far less rational than we'd like to believe, and we don't <laughs> lean into uh, harnessing the power of emotions nearly enough. I think we all feel it, but uh, people don't have the vocabulary nor are very willing to admit just how much of their emotions are driven by um, the effects of what other human beings like or what really, you know, pulled at their heartstrings through the power of nostalgia or whatever it may be. Um, and I think this is kind of like my core interest in storytelling and learning about um, culture and art and all of these types of things on my free time is just that I'm very interested in, in beautiful things and, and stuff that really moves the heart. And I'm interested in that not just because I selfishly like to consume it, but also because of its impact on people, because I think it's very undeniable. And in a world that I exist in that is much more driven by kind of uh, rational terms of like, what is the new budding idea? And like, you know, how can we quantify it and all that kind of stuff? Um, 
I'm interested in how that can spread and you can get people that otherwise would not be on board from like a mind perspective, from a heart perspective. And that's often just like the packaging of the story um, and whether who you're talking to and like how they'd like to be talked to and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's more kind of like the the pretty packaging on top of, of truths, but I think that it can be used for, for good or for um, packaging things that are perhaps a little bit unsavory in more favorable terms. And I think that all of it is just, there are layers on top that I'm interested in better understanding and like why it works in the human. <laughs> um, and and I, I yeah, I, I do. I wish that people were a little bit more, especially in the world that I'm in of venture capital and tech, a bit more honest with themselves about how much of what they do is driven by emotions and not actual <laughs> rational thought. <laughs> I love that. I love that. No, I, and I want to talk about you just talk about that a little bit more uh, on the venture capital front. Um, you know, how has it been coming into this industry? You know, I, I, I think the, the future bodes well for you because I, the, what the see, people I see that have been very successful, either they're very hard charging salespeople that has somehow can get into deals that, you know, and there's like this kind of momentum game you can play and that's one strategy. But then there's like the actual solving the crazy search problem, which seems like very <laughs> difficult. And it yeah. seems like you're focused really on, I mean, you, you may, you're probably a great salesperson too. You can close the fun, which is no small feat. <laughs> but um, I, I'm assuming uh, you're less of the challenger salesman and more of um, finding people that that are like the that have like this unique alpha that other people are missing, but that also mm -hmm. are fundable in the long term. Which seems like this really yeah. crazy kind of search problem. How do you think about solving that search problem? Um, do you have a systemic way you're thinking about doing that? And I don't want you to give away too much of the secret sauce, but if if some general thoughts come to mind. Oh, I'm happy to. I hope. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've proven nothing yet, but I, I do have strong opinions on this and I'm always happy to share them. Um, I think that for me, I just try to meet people extremely early and see glimmers of them that are potential indicators of future greatness and bet on that very, um, very early and try to like expand upon it through either grants or investment funding. Um, and that's something I have a whole thesis around investing in moths versus butterflies. And how I usually define that is butterflies are much more sparkly, immediately fundable, probably very charismatic um, yes. versus moths are the more like quietly, extremely competent, potentially like T-shaped in terms of they have a core competency that makes them actually confident, but then they're also generalists, maybe have a multidisciplinary background. And they are usually much more humble and maybe not very good salespeople yet. Um, but that's something that can be taught and is also not the most important thing at all, in my opinion. Um, them actually having the drive and ambition to change the world is like the part that I want to bet on. And so I look for that in people a lot. Um, and I think my kind of unique advantage with my fund that I'm trying to kind of <laughs> very traditionally capitalize on is that I am investing in both um, kind of a new cohort of entrepreneurs. I'm around the same age as a lot of the people that I'm seeing take their first shots on goal uh, of entrepreneurship. And while I don't think that there's a ton of like immediately investable opportunities there, I do really want to invest in helping them navigate the venture landscape. And I think being a generalist investor that puts in that time um, and really allows them to see a future in this space and encourages them and, and helps along the way in any way I can is going to pay off in probably around like three to four years, as well as it already is just because they're wonderful human beings. Um, so it's partly that. And then I think I also, I have a lot of founders that I worked with more on the storytelling front. I was a consultant for a long time um, for a lot of tech companies that refer me into really interesting 
companies and missions as more of like a go-to-market storytelling value add. And I'm a small check, so it's not that hard. Um, so I think that those are more curated from people whose taste I trust. But I think solving the search problem is mostly, yeah, kind of like automating, in my mind, this is my approach, automating like outsourcing your taste to people that you also trust the taste of and then just kind of like unequivocally taking those calls. If they say yes. someone is amazing, I will talk to them and I would love, love to it. help. Um, or it's, you know, taking kind of weird and unconventional bets on people that you just see some glimmer of and you're, yes. at least for me, I'm, I'm a kind of stubborn person and oftentimes I'm just not willing to give up on them, even if they are, everyone else is like, I don't think that they're going to start a company anytime soon. I'm like, I think they're amazing. I think they're going to do something incredible yes. and I would love to help them find that thing. So it's just like a long view kind of, um, approach. And, and I do think that a lot of my pattern matching of like what I look for as glimmers is, is formed from working with a lot of amazing founders early in my career and being lucky to have, uh, kind of source those data points from quality sources that I now pattern match to the founders or the future founders that I meet and being like, I see some kind of small thing in you that reminds me of this person. It worked really well when they solved that problem and it became a billion dollar outcome. And I'm like, okay, that that's enough for me. I'm willing to, <laughs> to help you along the way. And I want to be um, just like a trusted confidant. Cause I think that VC is at the earliest stages, it's mostly about just uh, really investing in and, and gaining the trust and supporting the person through all the ups and downs right. of entrepreneurship. Cause it's so hard at the beginning and you just want someone to listen. <laughs> I, I mean, I understand myself. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You've been through it. So yeah, exactly yeah. what that's yeah. like. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, how, how does, you know, I, I I'm curious, what does your day to day practice look like that? Do you have like, I, I don't know. I think I'm just so curious about this. Do you just, is it more free form? Like you and, and very intuitive to you? Like, okay, like, uh, you know, I'll reach out to these people. I'm, I'm reading, I'm learning, I'm exploring, I'm looking at opportunities, you know, seeking people out. Or is there more like a rigid kind of structure you kind of follow with, you know, trying to figure things out, trying to figure out where the real good opportunities are? Yeah, it's a mix. I think it depends on like the stage of uh, the fund I'm at, like recently I've been focused more on fundraising to close the fund. Um, but before that, I think I do a lot of sourcing online. I just look for really smart um, people either doing like research or writing for like more grants and like very early bets. Yes. And then for the actual investments from the fund that are like more core, oftentimes those are just referrals from other founders um, who I know are amazing and their friends are going to be amazing too. Um, and so I really, I invest in friend networks, to be honest. And I, I think that that goes pretty far. I think. Um, there's a lot to be said for just high trust environments and tapping into yes. those. Um, but I do, I do a lot of, yeah, sourcing through like Twitter, talking to friends about their most brilliant friends. I'm a big fan of finding people that I see to be kind of like community nodes of different scenes and then just talking to them, becoming their That's friend and, and hearing who they've been most impressed by. I try very hard to like bypass the, um, the like Twitter and social media bias of just kind of elevating stuff that is perhaps more just mimetic or, you know, the current thing, whatever it is, and, and more try to go directly to the people that are actually either on the ground or the ones who are getting emails about from smart young people that wouldn't talk on Twitter normally, but they're asking interesting, smart questions. And then I try to get in touch with them. Cause I think that there is a lot of bias of like, you know, being willing to present yourself online has a, a lot of potential upside, but there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable with that. And that's totally right. fine. Um, and that's actually something that like, in, in fact, it's kind of my forte in helping with at whatever point they want. Um, and so I, I try to get them early that way. And, and what that tactically means is, yeah, literally just asking the people that I know to be like super connectors in areas, like who 
who are the smart young people that are emailing you and asking good questions? I would love to meet them. And I've found a lot of success that way, finding people that otherwise I'd never find online. That's great. That's great. I love that. I love that. I think that's a really, really good approach there. Um, I want to move on a little bit and talk about beauty, something else you're interested in. Um, you know, has our, our, again, like in the West, the past 50 years, have things gotten less beautiful? Do we just build less things on the margin than we used to? I think it has, personally. I think it is, this is a really hard thing to comment on because it is, to a certain uh, extent, subjective. Yeah. But I do think that there is a, um, a consensus around uh post-modernity having a look that none of us find super like compelling at a heart level. And that yeah. to me is enough to say, yes, I think it has become far less beautiful. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that a lot of it are, are actually kind of more uh, political and societal in nature of just like, this is kind of the eventual outcome of living in a very individualistic society that is much more atomized. And, and we've kind of lost touch with these societal systems that used to encourage beauty for the sake of knowing deep down without metrics or anything to justify it, that it made people happy and that it really did help us um, just imagine better futures for ourselves. And what that tactically looked like was, you know, having more of a connection to religion and community and all these things. And I think we've become hyper fragmented. I can only really speak for the West um, because that's what I've grown up in, but I do think that there is something to be said there. Um, and it makes me sad and I want to counteract it. <laughs> If you could pick one intervention there to kind of reverse this, is there anything that comes to mind that you think would be pretty high leverage? Mm, that's lovely. I do really, I, from doing a lot of uh, explorations in, in grant making and thinking about it a lot, I do wish that there was uh, more of a, like a patronage model for um, the arts. And there, there is still a lot of East coast institutions will, um, fund like weird projects from artists, but it's very limited in scope compared to like what we had during the Medici age and things of that sort that was much more like no strings attached patronage of a person who they thought was an amazing yeah. artist in some dimension to just do their work for the rest of them li their lives instead of constantly applying for a grant. <laughs> I think that that's a shame. Um, and so I think that would be one intervention and that would be really giving patronage to um just utter outliers, like people that are exceptional at whatever beauty fostering art form they do, and then just saying, do your life's work and never have yes. to worry about money again. I think that that would be very, very um, just beneficial for all of society long term, uh, but also hard to justify. Where would that money come from? I, <laughs> and, and who would like, how would they write about it in a quarterly report? Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's the calculus, unfortunately. Yeah, it does seem like, yes, yes. It, we've got to this point perhaps where we were selecting for good grant winners, not good artists yeah. or something. And it's like, exactly. uh, it's like so hard to, to fix. Right. The problem to fix. The bureaucratic mindset is pervasive. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, I, I want, I want to talk about one other kind of line of, of thinking. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, you know, venture itself tech is, is highly mimetic. We see this all the time, you know, it's web three, Generative yeah. AI. I, I I didn't think there's like a lot of interesting applications of generative AI, but you know, I there there definitely is a lot of uh, there's a lot of heat there. There's a lot of interesting things happening where it's it seems to be driven by a lot of uh, people trying to they're just copying each other. Um, you yeah. know, how is it to be? You know, I, I'm assuming you live in San San Francisco. Is that correct? I do. Yep. 
So you're, you're in kind of the center of it. How does it feel to be there? And, and how does one kind of insulate themselves? Or have you found anything that helps you insulate yourself from uh, whatever the newest current thing is, uh, the hypest hype um, kind of <laughs> technology trend and just kind of avoiding that? I think I'm very selective about the people that I hang out with. That's been my my way to counteract it. I think I don't um, – I'm, I'm less interested in finding people that have the same, like, interests as me that we're just going to be talking in an echo chamber and much more interested in finding people that are spiky in a dimension that I'm not, but there's a shared value system where I know that I could learn a lot from them. Um, and then just sticking to them, even as they change all their interests and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I've seen a lot of benefits from that. I think that I, I really want to feel like connected and like I'm learning to the, the people around me, but I don't want to feel like I'm ever, uh, just talking to myself. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I make friends with people that are, you know, much more into music than they are technology. Maybe there's a shared thread or values, but other than that, it's, it's kind of totally in different worlds, but there's so many commonalities to be gleaned. Um, and I find a lot of inspiration in that. Um, I think that the conversations are much more kind of, they allow me to see reality differently. And that's something that I'm always searching, searching out and in, in the world. And I think Books are another way of doing that. Uh, there's lots of different ways. Uh, but I think anything that can kind of like reset your brain or allow you to see it from a different angle is going to be good. And I think I am pretty addicted to doing that a lot. <laughs> so I'm constantly looking for, for people that frame it in a different way or, a, you know, a thinker that thinks about something from a totally different angle than me. Or I'm always, always very interested in language for this reason, because in different languages, they group things differently and it allows you to kind of like see the world differently. Um, and, and I think that like, that's something that I also see in like the best founders that I meet oftentimes do, you know, present a vision that is just so remarkably different uh, because they obviously have a very unique perspective on the world. Um, and that's something that I think is, is a very powerful force and I, something I want to bet on and encourage to. And even in some of the people I give grants to, it's like you have like basically a personal ideology that like you are developing um, and that I want to see way more of way more of plurality of like, personal ideologies. And so I think I'm actually, if anything, perhaps a bit averse to whatever is like the hypiest thing, just because even if there is something really interesting there, there's probably other people covering it. (laughs) I'm more interested in the things that aren't being covered and betting on those. Um, And hopefully some will be huge just because uh, oftentimes, you know, very boring incremental things can be hugely ambitious if tackled from the right person with the right mentality. Um, And yeah, so I think that, and also just, I think, coming from a perspective of coming to venture from grants, like grants are by design, basically something that is usually used to encourage stuff that wouldn't happen otherwise because it can't make money. And so I think I take that lens a little bit with venture too of like, I, I'm not doing this in any way philanthropically, but I am interested in betting on stuff that otherwise wouldn't be betted on. Um, And not because it's bad, but just because maybe the, the current venture current thing like lens doesn't make it seem appealing because there's other things that are everyone else is chasing after. But it seems, it seems. Re- I, I love that. I love that thought. It, it, how do you navigate, like, in the venture context? It seems like, uh, you know, like, okay, like, if I was an LP, I'd be like, Molly, I know you're incredible at finding people who will do like really ambitious things. My only worry is like, how do you 
like solve the Keynesian beauty contest problem where like, uh, you know know what I mean? Like the other VCs are kind of dumb. So you've got to like somehow convince them that it's a good idea. Is some of that like solved just by the fact that, you know, you've built a good brand, you've got a good signal. And so like uh, your signal kind of helps reinforce other people like, okay, like it's weird, but you know, Molly's, she's smart person. Like we can, we can believe that, you know, because she put in a check, there must be something here. How do you think about kind of solving that Keynesian beauty contest problem? Hmm. It's a great question. I think one of the major goals of my work with Moth Fund is I really do want to develop it into a brand that does have that effect. It definitely doesn't now. It's just too early days. But I want it to be something that is a certain stamp, a certain type of level of credential that something is like interesting for perhaps yes. um, hard to articulate reasons. And I think right now how I solve for it is that I just have a pretty preferred like co-investor network of people that I know have similar taste as me. And I think that we generally align on like things that should exist and have similar value systems. And I think getting them on board is usually enough to get things off the ground. Um, And then I think my, my like value add as an investor is often being the person that helps those founders that are um, having trouble, like articulating why this thing is so valuable, but they know intrinsically that it is um, particularly then in terms that the rest of the world can understand. So it, it's kind of like a two-part process. It's like, I don't think it takes a lot to get something off the ground and someone like dedicating themselves to right. it if you pick someone who's sufficiently ambitious. But then it just becomes a packaging problem of like, how do you make it interesting to a more normie crowd or the, what it, it translated into the terms that are um, speaking the language of, you know, traditional investors and whatever is the current thing, which I actually don't think is that hard. <laughs> usually, like there's usually uh, some magic framing for most things that will make um, an investor and even a normal human excited. Uh, it's just finding the right narrative. And usually it's just connecting it back to like the human dimension of like, how what does this actually do for people? Like that's usually that's the core thing that needs solved. That's really good. No, no I really like that. I really like that. That's, that's really good really good thought there. It's like, you know, you find uh, the, these opportunities and then you can help kind of guide them into whatever's palatable to the like, yeah. current, you know, funding environment yeah. moment, which is really totally. an important skill, skill set. It absolutely is. And then you realize that most things are just packaging. Like, <laughs> and they're all like, it's funny when you realize that all these narratives that you can write that will like frame it in different ways, they're all true to a certain extent. And yeah. this is again, coming back to like the thing that I think people misunderstand about humans is it's like, it's just different emotional packagings um, and and knowing which one is the right one to use in different contexts is something that really forces you to acknowledge that we are not rational beings. And you could get a no for a reason that is not your fault at all. And it's not because they don't believe in it. It's just because you didn't present it right. And right. that requires taking a lot of accountability of like, it's actually your job to communicate things well. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think that technology and tech in general or in venture as well uh, has historically kind of been leaned a little in the other direction of, you know, it should objectively be something that is compelling and get people on board and they should appreciate the technology and the innovation. Yes. And I just think that we've surpassed beyond that. Like we are, technology is no longer a niche thing that is just for people pushing forward the future. It's now something that is interacting with the entire rest of the world and, you know, everyone's it's imbued in culture. Um, and at that point, that's when we really need to take a lot more responsibility of like how we talk to people. <laughs> That's great. That's great. On, <laughs> on, on that comms piece, you know, particularly in the startup context, how do you think about, you know, you're giving advice to a new founder. How, how do you think about, you know, getting them to tell their story in a, in a really good way? Is it just like recognizing the vibes in the room and make sure you're you're aligned with that? Or, uh, you know, how do you think about crafting a really good narrative um, that, that might be, yeah, just, just how do you think about doing that? 
I think at the early stages, I actually um, usually advise people to make it highly specific and opinionated because they actually, it's more beneficial to filter for people that are extremely values aligned and very similar to you. And so that you can make a company and almost kind of mini cult, get something impossible off the ground because there's so much shared context and shared just vision. Um, So, so being opinionated in that, in that context and putting out bad signals that are like, this is what we believe in our personal ideology as a company. And if you agree and you see a lot of resonance and overlap with how you see the world, then you should come talk to us. That is a very, very smart strategic thing to do because you don't want to get people that you're convincing all the time. (laughs) Like you want them to be very much on board. Um, And then I think that, you know, startups, they usually have many inflection points after that where they do need to start making it more palatable and and interesting to different segments of people. But you just being extremely specific about who you're targeting. And even in the early days of like startups and, you know, under 10 people team, um, that's when you should have like an ideal archetype of like who this person is that you are, that you consider to be a, you know, insert company name blank type of person. Um, and then where should you be showing up in the world that you will attract more of them? Because that's what you're trying to do. You're just trying to like get a bunch of people like you to make something impossible happen. Um, and then after that, you know, after it gets bigger, then it's more about, okay, yeah, now we're trying to like actually scale and bring in the people that know how to do that and turn this into like a real yes. multi-generational business. And then you need to start speaking more in terms of like security and stability and vision and, and health insurance and yeah, that, that kind of jazz. stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, that exciting stuff. I love it. I mm-hmm. love it. That's really good advice. That's really good advice. Um, well, Molly, I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I, I really learned a lot today. I, I really appreciate it. Do you mind uh, just giving us like where people can find you on the internet? Where should we send them, et cetera, if they want to learn more about you, your fund, and, and your work? Of course. Yeah, it was my pleasure. really enjoyed this. Um, I think, so my fund's website is mothfund.com. I do some writing, mothfund.substack.com. I usually publish like a quarterly kind of reflection on what I'm seeing and venture through fresh eyes. Um, And then my personal website is mollymilky.com. And I am always open to emails from anyone. Uh, You can email me at m at mollymilky.com. And I think that's about it. I, I love emails from anyone, thoughts, reflections, what you're working on, all that good stuff. Love it. Thanks so much, Molly. Of course. Thank you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.